Well, tonight we're looking at the love of God. And one of the things that he talks about toward the beginning of the chapter is the fact that the Bible says in a couple of locations that God is love. And it's not often in the Bible that we have that construction where it says that God is something. Uh, We have a few places like that. We have God is love. Uh, God is truth. Uh, he, He brings our attention to a couple of them in the chapter tonight. God is spirit and God is light. Um, but it's uh, not often that we have that construction in Scripture. God is something. And I, I would argue, and he argues, I think, too, that when we have that construction, that means it's an incredibly important attribute of God uh, a, at the core of who God is. Um, we have in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so these, uh, it's an important uh, doctrine. And one of the things he says is uh, this doctrine is an incredibly precious doctrine, but it's also one that's misunderstood. And I think one of the ways that it's misunderstood in, especially in modern times, is the love of God has, at least in popular perception, I think even in Christian circles, has kind of become the overarching doctrine for everything that God is, which it's fine to emphasize the love of God. I mean, God is love, but you can't do that to the exclusion of everything else that God is, all of his other attributes. And so he draws our attention to that. And so he wants us to avoid any misunderstandings about the love of God. And he also wants us to just marvel at the preciousness of its truth. And he brings us to uh, Romans 5, verse 5, which says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And he draws our attention to three things about that verse. One is the idea that the love of God would be shed abroad in our hearts. And he says, essentially what that is, is... Um, an overflow, a, a pouring out of God's love. It is, uh, is our, our hearts being flooded with the love of God. And so it is um, a, a bountiful expression of God's goodness to us. And he also says that the second thing about that verse is that it's in the past perfect, in the sense that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts, meaning that it is something that has happened in the past, but it's now settled and has abiding, ongoing consequences or, or fruit. So God has in the past shed his love in our hearts and he says is still there. God's love is still poured out on our hearts. And he uses the illustration of a flood since God has flooded our hearts with love, it's kind of like when rain comes and fills up a hole, that, that, that water's still there. It, it still uh, uh, ha- has that water there. He says that's kind of what God's love has done in our hearts. God's love is flooded. It's been poured out on our hearts, and it's there. 
we have it now. And he says the third thing to notice about that is that it's through the Holy Spirit that God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. And that means that it is an abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is constantly with us. He, he, we, are, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so it is, it is a continual abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you had a chance to read the chapter before tonight, I really appreciated one of the things that he said on page 118, 119, when he was talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because he made the statement that, especially in our day, we have so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit's, what we, what we might call miraculous gifts, uh, that are sporadic and not, not given to everyone. They're more miraculous, such as speaking in tongues or miracles, healing, things like that. He says, in the, especially in charismatic Pentecostal circles, there's so much emphasis, focus on desiring those aspects of the ministry of the Spirit that we lose sight of and we forget about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he has in our lives 24-7, every day, and for all of God's people. Uh, he says, uh, and he, he draws in 1 Corinthians 13, which is in the middle of a discussion of spiritual gifts. Uh, the Corinthian church was all abuzz about speaking in tongues and wanting that gift of speaking in tongues. And I think the Corinthian church was kind of elevating that gift of the spirit more highly and above everything else they should have. And Paul says, not everyone's going to have that gift. And he's, he's writing in his day when the apostles are still there and there's still some of these gifts still active by the Holy Spirit. But even then, not everyone's going to have that gift of speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit is sovereign and he gives his gifts as he wills. Not everyone's going to have that gift. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous passage on love in all the Bible, it doesn't matter if I have, uh, can speak in all the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. If I don't have love, it's all worthless. It's all useless. And love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And so he says, uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us a knowledge of the fact that God loves us that God's love has been poured out on us. That is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, we should focus on and, and not be focusing our attention so much on what we might call miraculous gifts of the Spirit, which I'm not convinced are still active today now that the apostles have gone and the New Testament is finished. But the Holy Spirit reassuring us of the love of God, that's an ongoing ministry that is always there, always present. In the next section, um, bottom page 119, he says that uh, there are a couple of things in Scripture that are helpful for us uh, to remember with regard to the love of God. And uh, one of those is that he mentions at the bottom of page 119 that God is love. And that, that statement, that idea, that quality of God, that is not the complete truth about God so far as the Bible is concerned. In other words, God is love, 
but that's not all that he is. And the Bible reveals so much more to us about who God is. And so uh, we can't, we can't come away with the idea that, well, because God is love, he's not going to judge sin. Because God is love, he would never send someone to hell. Because God is love, everyone on the planet is going to be saved. And, and these are some ideas that are out there. You know, universalism, uh, no judgment, no hell. All of these things, I think, are driven by this idea that God is love. But the problem is, is, is that our definition of love or is that the Bible's definition of love? And are we thinking about that in the context of everything that the Bible says about who God is? Um, so he says, the God who is love is the same God who made the world, the God who judged that world by a flood, the God who called Abraham and made him a nation, the God who chastened his Old Testament people by conquest, captivity and exile, the same God who cast off unbelieving Israel. That's the same God who is love. So God is still a God of justice. He's still a God of holiness. He's still a God of righteousness. All of that goes together with who God is. We can't look at his love separate from the rest of what he is. And so he brings into it a couple of other places where it says that God is something. God is spirit. God is spirit. And we read this in John 4. And in the context of John 4, it's in the context of Jesus talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman asked the question, so should we worship at Jerusalem or should we worship at Mount Gerizim, Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim? There was a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews about where the proper place to worship was. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter because now that the, now that the sun has come, Jesus has come. Now it's, it's not a matter of location where your feet may be standing. Now it's a matter of, are you worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Because he says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, which means he's everywhere, isn't he? So the Samaritan woman was asking Jesus, should we worship him here or here? And Jesus says, God's a spirit. He's everywhere. His presence is not bound by any particular location. So you must worship him as a spirit. But you also must worship him in truth. And I think one way of understanding that is, in the truth that God has revealed about himself. So God is worshiped as a universal spirit who is everywhere. And also God has told us in his word, he's revealed to us how we should worship him. And he's told us everything about himself that we need to know to worship him, that he is loving, but yes, that he's also righteous and holy, gracious. So God is a spirit. And he also brings to our attention the fact that God is light. And the fact that God is light points to his holiness, his moral purity. This is on page 121. He says, um, God is light. John made this statement against certain professing Christians who had lost touch with moral realities and were claiming that nothing they did was sin. This is in 1 John chapter 1. So the force of John's words is brought out by the next clause in 1 John 1, 5. And in him, there is no darkness at all. 
meaning that God is light. There is no darkness, which means he is complete, 100% purity and holiness, and there is nothing defiled in him at all. No impurity. And so the same God who is love is also the, the God who is light, who is pure and holy and true. The same God who is love is the God who is spirit and must be worshipped as a spirit and in truth in the way that he has revealed himself. So he says one of the mistakes that we can make is when we think of the love of God, we can shrink God down to just that one attribute. But if we do that, we, don't, we no longer have the God of the Bible. We have a God of our own making. So God is love, but we need the whole picture that God has revealed of himself. So God is love is not the complete truth that the Bible has revealed. There's more to God than that. But secondly, this is on page 122, he says, God is love, that statement, that concept of God, he says, is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. In other words, our whole experience of God, our whole understanding of who he is, our whole relationship with God, all of it is kind of mediated through love. We would not know God. We would not have a relationship with God. We, we could not be called children of God without love. And so in a way, what he's saying here is our whole experience as Christians is, is bound up with that idea that God is love. And, and we would not be Christians. We would not be saved. We would not experience the grace of God without the fact that God is love to us. And so uh, that in terms of our experience as Christians, we need to know and be assured of the love of God in our lives and that everything that comes to us from God comes to us from love. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute because there are difficult things that happen in our lives. Chris, uh, the Christian life is not free of pain. The Christian life has difficulties, has troubles. But this idea, this concept that God is love to us and that everything that comes to us from God is out of love, that means that even that trial, even that trouble comes out of love. Why? Because Romans 8.28 says God is working it together for good, isn't he? So God, even though that individual thing might be hard, it might be difficult, the whole reason why God is, is doing what he's doing in our lives is because he loves us. And he's seeking to make us more and more like Christ. And so even the discipline of God that may come to us because of our wrongdoing, because of our foolishness, the discipline of God may come to us because of love. Hebrews 12 says the father loves his children, therefore he disciplines them. So everything that God does for us is love. So how do we define God's love? He gives us a, a definition on page 123. He says, God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners 
whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. And then he just kind of walks us through the components of that definition. So he says, first, God's love is an exercise of his goodness. That, that what comes to us from God is in his love is kindness, goodness. It is, uh, as he, he quotes from Burkhoff here, it says that God's goodness is that perfection in God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. It is the affection which the creator feels towards his sentient creatures as such, those made in his image. And then um, a little bit later down, he quotes from uh, James Orr, who says, the love of God generally is that principle which leads one moral being to desire and delight in another and reaches its highest form in that personal fellowship in which each lives in the life of the other and finds his joy in imparting himself to the other and in receiving back the outflow of that other's affection unto himself. So God, God loves us, therefore he gives goodness, benevolence, kindness to us. Then he says the second component of that definition is that God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward sinners. That's, that's one of the most mind-blowing things about the love of God, is that God would love in this way to people who completely don't deserve it. We have the concept in our minds and we can imagine loving people that are lovable, right? That, that is somewhat natural for us. Uh, we can love our family, our spouse, our children. We can love our friends. We can love people who are lovable. But what about the meanest, angriest, most cantankerous person that you can imagine? It's hard to love that person. And I mean, think about someone who has wronged you, hurt you, done violence to you, stolen from you, slandered your name, and then you do an act of kindness and goodwill for that person. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Now, take that, as difficult as that, that is for us to comprehend and extend it to the infinite level, because God is infinitely holy and we are sinful and have offended an infinite God. So the gap between God's holiness and our wretchedness is even greater than what we can describe. And yet God loves us in that condition, not when we clean ourselves up and take a bath and look better and more presentable. No, God loves us in that uh, pigsty, filthy condition. That's when God loves us and reached down and picked us up. And thirdly, 
God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. In other words, what he's saying here is that God's love is not generic and indiscriminate. It's not like God's love is just kind of poured out there willy-nilly, kind of like like when you go out and you plant seed in the garden or maybe grass seed, and you're just kind of throwing it out there thinking, well, I hope some of the seed sticks, right? I hope some of the seed sticks. I hope some of it goes into the ground. I hope some grass comes out of this. You're not sure how much of it's going to be successful at all because some of it may not go in the ground. Some of it might get blown away. Some of it might be eaten by birds. God's love towards sinners is not like that. It's not just thrown out there and we'll see what happens. God's love is toward individual sinners. It's specific. It's purposeful. It has to do with God's eternal purpose and election. That before eternity passed, he would set his love upon individual people and determine to infallibly save them. Individual sinners. So he says, God's love is not a vague, diffused goodwill toward everyone in general and nobody in particular. He says, rather, as being a function of omniscient almightiness, its nature is to particularize both its objects and its effects. God's purpose of love formed before creation involved first the choice and selection of those whom he would bless, and second, the appointment of the benefits to be given them and the means whereby these benefits would be procured and enjoyed. And all this was made sure from the start. That's God's individual love towards sinners. And fourthly, he says, God's love to sinners involves his identifying himself with their welfare. Meaning that God, because God has so determined, desires for us, his children, to, make, to be made whole and happy and joyful and has bound up his glory and joy and happiness with that. And so God has so identified himself with us and with our ultimate joy that he must bring it to completion for him to be ultimately satisfied. So much so that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to become one of us and to fully identify with us as human beings. And that's the fifth point, is that God's love to sinners was expressed by the gift of his son to be their savior. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. What does that mean? God loved the world this in this way, this to this extent, to this degree that he would send his only begotten son into the world. That those who believe him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so God's love to sinners was expressed by the gift of his son to be their savior. Romans 5:8. God demonstrates his love in this that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. 
Jesus came to die for us in our state, in our condition of sin. And that is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That is God's display of his love is for us through Jesus Christ. Sixthly, the last component of the definition is God's love to sinners reaches its objective as it brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. And a covenant relation is one in which two parties are permanently pledged to one another in mutual service and dependence. An example is marriage. And so there are covenant promises. There are covenant commitments involved, blessings and relationship. And the Bible all the way throughout tells the story of God's dealings with his people through this idea of covenant. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Israel. He made a covenant with David. He makes a covenant with us in the new covenant in Christ. And the idea of a covenant is that God enters into a relationship, a permanent binding relationship sealed with blood in which God promises to do for us certain things. And he makes that promise to us through Christ. And the idea of covenant, the ultimate goal is expressed to Abraham in Genesis 17 when it says that God to Abraham is going to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And you see this phrase all the way throughout the Bible that I will be their God and they shall be my people. That idea, that relational idea binds the whole story of the scriptures together. Going back to the Garden of Eden through God's calling of Israel and the Exodus all the way to a new heavens and new earth that I will dwell among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so uh, this is uh, God desiring to be in relationship with us. And he gives us long quote on page 126 that I thought was just incredible. This is from Thomas Brooks, uh, a, a older Puritan writer. On page 126, he says, it is as if God said, you shall have as true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you. And my power shall be yours to protect you. And my wisdom shall be yours to direct you. And my goodness shall be yours to relieve you. And my mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. This is a comprehensive promise for God to be our God. It includes all. That is an amazing thought, isn't it? That when God says, I'm going to be your God, He's saying, all that I am is for you to be your God. And so he concludes then uh, the last page of the chapter, page 127, with what amazing love. And he says really kind of a twofold response or a twofold application of this. One is 
just in terms of our thoughts, our attitudes. Do we have a, a, an assurance, a remembrance of this bountiful love of God? If so, then he says, why am I discouraged? Why am I afraid? Why am I without hope? Why am I despondent? A, 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 the love of God, the knowledge of the love of God poured out in our hearts, he says, needs to dispel those fears and doubts and questionings. So that's one application is learn more of the love of God and reflect more on the love of God, that God is for you, not against you. Isn't that an amazing statement in Romans chapter eight? Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? If you are a believer in Christ, God is for you, not against you. So don't be depressed, despondent, fearful, um, but grow in the assurance of his love for you. And he says the other application is more ethical and it has to do with the way we relate to one another because in 1 John 4.11, it says that God is love, but then turns right around and says, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the love of God, this idea that God is love needs to continue to be on our minds and meditate on it so that we can be assured of that and, and stand in joy in that. And also that love of God needs to then transform into the way that we show kindness and grace to other people 